Hello, and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. Hello and welcome. Uh, yeah, just a little bit of a, a less obnoxious to me um, place filler uh, opening tune there. So this episode's a little bit different. Uh, probably not a full length one. Kind of a hybrid uh, audiobook episode um, and and not. So uh, we're I've got a bunch of kind of irons in the fire. Some bagpipes that are coming at some point, and it's got me feeling kind of stalled out from doing a full episode. Also, I have that LBPS session coming up in. Uh, a couple of weeks here in February, so uh, my my attentions are diverted elsewhere. But uh, I wanted to share with you all kind of what I ran my students through. Uh, I've been teaching four classes this semester, and one of them, this is my second time teaching uh, the Modern American Survey course, which starts in 1877. And that means it gives me an opportunity to talk about the Chicago World's Fair, which is interesting history that I enjoy talking about. So I kind of leaned into that, and I realized that, hey, there's pipers at the Chicago World's Fair, and Francis O'Neill has written about them a bit. So uh, I had my students read an excerpt from Francis O'Neill's book talking about uh, minstrels and things and uh, had them read the Turlough McSweeney bit and then I played some tunes that are associated with it. So I'm just going to present that to you here as an audiobook and uh, I'll kind of inject the tunes uh, roughly where it makes sense based on uh, what Francis O'Neill is saying about Turlough McSweeney. So I'm not going to introduce the tunes. I'll tell you what they are afterwards and I might as well tell you what they are beforehand too. So the first one you're going to hear is uh, The Wild Irishman, which in uh, O'Neill's setting from the dance music of Ireland, uh, he has The Wild Irishman. Uh, it directs to Bullet the Breakfast Early and he says this is his setting for it. <clears throat> Turlough McSweeney says that uh, The Wild Irishman is his favorite reel. And since O'Neill's a person that writes that down, I feel like this is probably the version uh, the version of the tune that McSweeney was talking about. There's lots of different settings for Wild Irishmen. The next tune you're going to hear is Toss the Feathers, which is a tune that a, a fairy visitor um, plays magically for um, for Turlough in Ireland. And then the next tune you're going to hear is uh, Cherish the Ladies, which is the, a jig that one of Turlough's hosts, it's his favorite jig, and so Turlock plays it for him. Uh, later on, um, O'Neill, in his discussion of Turlock, kind of includes a, a song that somebody wrote about him uh, that was not particularly kind. Uh, and it's uh, it's to the, the melody of Vagamitsu uh, Marata Sei. Not sure how to pronounce these things. That's the other thing to note. I'm sure I'm getting some pronunciations wrong in this reading. So just don't go off what I'm saying. Uh, anyway, I'm using... Goodman setting for that tune. Goodman just calls it jig, um, but other places have this tune called that. So you, I'll just include me playing the jig version on pipes so you can kind of hear the melody and imagine what the Donegal Piper song is supposed to sound like. Part of that Donegal Piper song is complaining that uh, McSweeney only, his favorite, his only reel is Up the Fiddle, or Up the Broomstick, rather. I couldn't find any tune called Up the Broomstick, but there's a fairly well-known reel called The Broomstick from the O'Keefe Fiddle Manuscript, and it's a fun tune, so I posted it. I'm not sure if that's quite right or not. <clears throat> I did find sheet music for the tune uh, that McSweeney plays for his, like, fairy guest uh, from the Curtis Manuscript, which is super, or sorry, Curtain Manuscript, which is super hard. Uh, someday I might tackle it, but uh, anyway, I've got sheet music for it. You can check it out if you're on the Patreon feed. I'll, I'll have it in it. I'll have a link to it in the show notes too. Uh, and then finally, at the end there, uh, there's some speculation that uh, Sweeney, McSweeney had a copy of O'Farrell's National Tutor. And since we don't really know a ton of the tunes that McSweeney played, other than he played a bunch, um, O'Neill 
kind of posits, gives the explanation for why we think that McSweeney had one of the like very few and rare surviving copies of O'Farrell's National Tutor towards the end of the excerpt. So I included the, um, yeah, the three first tunes in there. So that's the Hermit of Killarney, uh, Fair Peggy, and Kitty Terrell. But I'll be, you know, at that point, I'll, I'll cut back in and be introducing every tune. So anyway, without further ado, uh, let's get to Francis O'Neill's description of Turlaw McSweeney. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Chicago Fair uh, after that. The following excerpt comes from Francis O'Neill's Irish Musicians and Minstrels, published Chicago, 1913. Turlaw McSweeney. No Irish piper of ancient or modern times, unless it be the piper who played for Moses, has been the subject of so much publicity as McSweeney. The Donegal Piper, since brought to light by Mrs. Hart and installed at Donegal Castle on the Midway ca- uh, on the World Columbians Exposition at Chicago in 1893, and the evolution of time and the decay of ancient Irish institutions during the 19th century, the professional piper sometimes was obliged to abandon his calling and seek a livelihood by more profitable means, and so it was with McSweeney. On his arrival in Chicago, McSweeney found that his instrument from age and disuse was entirely unfit for the service required, and had it not been for the kind helpfulness of Sergeant James Early, it would have been scarcely possible for him to fulfill his mission. While the Donegal Piper played outside the main entrance to Donegal Castle, Patsy Toohey, the great Irish-American piper, was the center of attraction within, and no two musicians on the midway representing their respective countries won more attention or elicited more praise than they. As McSweeney enjoyed the hospitality of Sergeant Early from Saturday evening until Monday morning during his six-month stay in Chicago, so we uh, we were afforded ample opportunity to hear him at his best. For an Irish piper, his coldness and reticence were in marked contrast with the manners of most persons of his class. The taciturnity may may have been uh, constitutional, yet who knows, but it was the visible effect of maintaining the dignity befitting a distinguished piper. Conscience of his descent from the chieftains of the once powerful clan McSweeney, or Tier Canal, be that as it may, he rarely relaxed his reserve. With his host and benefactor, Sergeant Early, and with Mr. Gillian, a great admirer of his music, he was more communicative communicative and almost cordial. Inspired by the fairies. It was while in one of his gracious moods that he confided to them how he came to be such a great piper. In his young days, McSweeney was no musical prodigy, as one may uh, surmise from his subsequent reputation. In fact, he was not much of a player at all, according to his own account, uh, though having the advantage of heredity uh, and example for his father and grandfather, particularly the latter, were fine pipers in their day. There was no music in me, is what he tells of his lack of talent, but he was anxious to learn and to be a credit to his name and ancestry. Despairing of other means of attaining success, it occurred to him to make an appeal to the fairies on the Rath of Gachdor, uh, on the hilltop, uh, half a mile away. One moonlit night, he plucked up courage, and with his pipes buckled on all ready for playing, he made his way up along the Boreen, and across the fields, and timidly entered the fort. But perhaps the reader would prefer to read the story in his own words. Quote, Well, as I was saying, when I got to the center of the plaza, uh, as near as I could tell, you may be sure, I wasn't any too comfortable. Anyhow, I addressed myself to the king of the fairy, saying, I am Turlaw McSweeney, the piper of Gwador, and I hope you will pardon my boldness for coming to ask your majesty to play a tune on the pipes for me, and I'll return the compliment and play for you. 
Yara, man, like a shot out of a gun, the words were hardly out of my mouth when the grandest music of many pipers, let alone one, playing all together, filled my ears. And that wasn't all, for lo and behold you, what should I see but scores of little fairies, or lurikins, wearing red caps neatly footing it, as if it were a wager, as if it were a wager. Believe me, I was so overcome with fright and at such a strange and unexpected sight that I ran for the bare life, my pipes hanging to me hanging to me, and dropping off peace and joint along the way. And by the time I reached home, the dickens a bit of my whole set of pipes was left to me but the bellows and bag, and they couldn't let go as they were strapped around my waist. Picture to yourselves the kind of a night I spent after that happened. Anyway, by sunup in the morning, I ventured out to and started to try and pick up the disjointed sections of my pipes. As I knew well enough the route I ran, my luck relieved... Uh, my misgivings when I found the last missing part, which had dropped off at the very entrance to the wrath or fort when I ran away. I lost, I lost no time in putting the now complete instrument in order, and to keep my word and fulfill my promise made to the king of the fairies the night before, I struck up the wild Irishman, my favorite reel. Words can't express my astonishment and delight when I found I could play as well as the best of them. And that, gentlemen, is how I came to be the best union piper of my day in that part of the country. entertains a fairy unawares. Many years after that, when I was living alone in a little cabin after my mother died, God rest her soul, there came to the door in the dusk of the evening a stranger, and nothing less than a piper, by the way, who, with a God save all here, introduced himself, as was customary. I invited him in, of course, and after making himself at ease, he says, would you like to hear a tune on the pipes? I would that, said I, for you know a piper and his music are always welcome in an Irish home. Taking his pipes out of the bag, he laid them on the bed beside him, and what do you think? But without anyone laying a finger on them, they struck up, tossed the feathers in a way that would have made a cripple get up and dance. After a while, when they stopped, he says, Will you play a tune for me now? I said I would, and welcome, pulling the blanket off my pipes that were hid under the bedclothes to keep the reeds from drying out. Give us uh, Shauna Deer Aglana, I says I to the pipes. And they commenced to play. The mysterious stranger, who no doubt was a fairy, remarked, Ah, Mac, I see you are one of us, with that both sets of pipes played half a dozen tunes together. When they had enough of it, the fairy picked up his pipes and put them in the green bag again. If I had any doubts about him before, I had none at all when he said familiarly, Mac, I'm delighted with my visit here this evening, 
and as I have several other calls to make, I'll have to be after bidding you good night. But if I should happen to be passing this way again, I'll be sure to drop in. We must always be careful to not offend the good people. But as I traveled around through the northern counties a great deal after that, and even into Scotland, of course, he couldn't blame me if I wasn't at home to entertain him if he happened to be calling again during my absence. experiences. On another occasion, McSweeney was at the center of attraction of a house party gotten up in his honor by Mr. John Gillen. Naturally, all present were musicians or music lovers, and taking into consideration the lavish hospitality of an Irish host, it occasioned no surprise when, under mollifying influence of a few tumblers of screeching hot punch, the Donegal Piper relaxed his customary reserve and began almost became almost sociable. When he realized that Billy McCormick, a local piper present, was an admirer instead of a rival, and that he could converse with him in his native Irish, he took to him at once and invited him out during a lull in the festivities. Instead of speaking to McCormick, however, his mysterious mutterings seemed to be addressed to someone else not visible in the darkness. McCormick began to feel uneasy, and his dismay was not lessened when McSweeney abruptly asked him, Would you like to have the scum lifted from your eyes? If you do, I'll show you something. At the same time, uh, slipping him an old country jobber's penny, Keenly alive to the insidious liberality of the dread recruiting sergeant and the fatal consequences of accepting, accepting gifts from the fairies, McCormick did not wait to answer, but headed for home as fast as his legs could carry him, and without observing the merest formalities of leave-taking. Convinced that the Donegal Piper was either a fairy himself or their agent, McCormick carefully avoided meeting him thereafter. It was nearly midnight when that mu ardent music lover, Mr. Gillen, the genial host called for Cherish the Ladies, his favorite jig. When the star of the evening, McSweeney, had played it to his satisfaction of all present, he deliberately lit his pipe and announced, Now, Mr. Gillen, I've been playing for you all night, and I think it is about time I should play something for ourselves. With that, he took the whiskey jug, yet far from being empty, opened the back door, and peering into the backyard, said in a familiar tone, as if inviting intimate friends, Boys, everybody come here and help yourselves. Suiting the action to the words, he deposited the precious jug on the platform just outside the door, where it is presumed the fairy host regaled themselves to their heart's content. 
From that time, and until near daylight, McSweeney, who had changed from the parlor to a seat near the kitchen door, played for the fairies without stopping or uttering a word. And you may say it was he had the bag full of tunes. Mr. Gillen, who was listening in rapt attention all the time and ought to know, being an excellent judge of music, assures us that the music Mac played for the fairies' entertainment was much superior to his performance in the parlor in the early part of the night. At what hour the invisible audience departed, we were unable to say, but when the good lady of the house came downstairs in the morning, the piper lay on the kitchen floor, pipes and all, with his head projecting halfway under the stove, while Mr. Gillen himself was sound asleep in an easy chair. The jug was empty, and the host wasn't taking anything. Who could have drained it if the fairies hadn't? Professional jealousy. Professional jealousy, especially among musicians, that bane of fellowship and concerted effort is sure to find a vent, and although Turlaw McSweeney betrayed no evidence of membership in the Knockers Club, and that didn't save him from being the subject of a poem, God Save the Mark, calculated to disparage his musical pretensions. It emanated from the fertile brain of the versatile John K. Beattie, who, to ensure its preservation, sang it haltingly into an Edison phonograph to the tune of Fagamaid Sidmar Atasach. sample of what a poetical piper can perpetrate when he gets his muse in motion. A few verses are here reproduced with apologies to the reader. 
the Donegal Piper. Ye sons of Apollo, come listen to me, and a comical story I'll tell unto ye, of a musical genius that came across the sea to represent all Irish pipers. When he came from New York to the Great World's Fair, he met Champion Murphy of the Auburn Hair, and a big blowhard Ennis from the county Kildare, who called themselves all Irish pipers. When he got his engagement late in the spring, he took his seat with an air that would rival as king. Some friends went to see him, and, and presents did bring, and called him the Donegal Piper. He had but one reel called up the broomstick, and all other reels he would pitch to Old Nick. The way that he played, it was but an old trick, for that man called the Donegal Piper. He played every day from the time he got there, and the Tuies and Flaherties came in for their share. Such trios as they would make a man swear that e'er heard the genuine piper. When his flat-throated chanter and pipes with a squall, they were like a screech owl or a whippoorwill's call. Why, Mozart or Beethoven wasn't in it at all with this man called the Donegal Piper. I've heard all the pipers from round Skibberine and all the Ballinafad up to Sweet College Green. Arrah, such a mimic an Irish was never yet seen as this man was called the Donegal Piper. But now he is gone, and our spirits are low, and I say, God be with him. Godios, Godio. Since Ireland was scourged by that villain Strongbow, you never have heard such a piper. Search Ireland all over, from seashore to seashore, from the cliffs of Cape Clear to the wrath of Gwador, and you'll never meet a man such a musical bore as the one called the Donegal Piper. And so end the stories of the Donegal Piper, partly as told by himself in all seriousness to men not much his junior in years. For obvious reasons, such tales are never debatable, uh, yet those who came in contact with the taciturn minstrel felt that they were something strange, inscrutable, and even uncanny in his whole demeanor. Wonderfully even and correct was his rendition of Irish airs, and his systematic manipulation of the regulators or concords in diff uh, difficult and varied pieces plainly demonstrated that his instructor had an apt pupil. And still, withal, the coldness of his character was reflected in his music. Faultless in time, as the tones of a hand organ, the spirit of the Irish tune seemed lacking that spirit which even at the hands of a less capable performer invigorates our system and impels us to dance or beat time to the rhythm.
To an issue of the Christian Age in 1909, kindly sent by Mr. J.S. Wayland, we are indebted for the following. Descendant of Kings in Receipt of Old Age Pension In the varying fortunes of its people, the history of few countries presents more striking examples than that of Ireland. The many and fierce internecine wars which, uh, with which Ireland was distracted in her early days, followed by the Anglo-Norman conquest of the country in the 12th century, has tended to bring about a state of affairs by which, at the present time, some families who formerly ranked among the highest in the land are now in poverty, while others have been raised from obscurity and are at present in possession of wealthy estates. A notable example of the reverse of fortune is afforded by the subject of this picture in the person of Turlaw McSweeney. A reference to O'Hart's Irish pedigrees will show that the ancestors of this remarkable old man, born in 1829, and who was followed, uh, who has followed the occupation of professional Irish piper, were formerly princes, closely connected with the royal line of Ireland. The records of his race have been so carefully preserved that his pedigree can be traced to Aramon, the first king of Ireland, in the year 1690 BC. The following, a list of the names and comparatively modern ancestors ending with the Donachmore, or last of the McSweeney chieftains, son of Sir Miles McSweeney of Doe Castle. No wonder his dignity and reserve were all nigh impenetrable. In a letter to Mr. Wayland, uh, Wayland from Strabane, County Tyrone, in 1909, the writer who chanced to meet our hero has this to stay of him. McSweeney is a very queer old man, and will give no instruction about the pipes or piping whatsoever. He claims to have a book of instruction for the pipes, and has and has it for over sixty years, but would not part with it, as it is the only one in existence at the present time. He had offers for it several times, but money could not induce him to part with it. He would give lessons on the pipes, but would not make known the terms. He has no pupils. Neither of his two sons plays the pipes, but it is rumored that one of his five daughters could. Or, as she, as well as others of his children, have scattered far and wide, I could not trace her. Professional Rating In the Piper's competition at the first Dublin Fish Kill in 1897, where Mr. Wayland met him, McSweeney was awarded the second prize. Robert Thompson, winner of the first prize, was similarly honored at the Belfast uh, Flesh the following year. Being in line with the tales of fairy enchantment, his mysterious allusions to a book of instructions all through his career have served to make him an object of peculiar interest to people of his class everywhere. No human eye except his own has ever been uh, permitted to profane this treasure by even a glance. As a concession to his benefactors before named, he presented them with a scale of the natural notes on the Irish chanter, which upon comparison we find is identical with that to be found in O'Farrell's National Irish Music and reprinted in Appendix A of Irish Folk Music, a fascinating hobby. It is claimed that the only copy of O'Farrell's work in Ireland is in the library of the Dublin Museum. By way of information, it may be added that another copy recently procured through a London book agency occupies an honored place in the writer's library. Even so, the Donegal Piper may well regard this treasure as priceless, cherishing, as he undoubtedly does, the hallucination that he possesses the only copy in existence of one of the rarest and most unique works ever printed on a British press. To add to his fame, he has been immortalized by the poetess Anna Johnston, now Mrs. Seamus McManus, in a poem bearing his name. A health to you, Piper, and your pipe silver-tongued clear and sweet in their crooning, Full of the music they gathered at morn, on your high heather hills, from the lark on the wing, from the blackbird at eve on the blossoming thorn, 
and from the little green linnet who's playing they sing and the joy and the hope and the heart of the spring oh Turlaw McSweeney although five more verses and a uh, uh, peroration follow from the same gifted pen we must bid adieu to the Donegal, Donegal Piper and wish him long life in his 84th year Well, yeah, that's uh, that'll that'll do it for Turlaw McSweeney uh, from O'Neill. Anyway, uh, once again, the tunes were uh, in order. Uh, they started with uh, "Boil of Breakfast Early," uh, which is what O'Neill's setting is in uh, the wild for the Wild Irishman, uh, and then it was "Toss the Feathers" and, and then "Cherish the Ladies." All three of those settings came from. Francis O'Neill's Dance Music of Ireland, published in 1907. Uh, and then the melody tune for the Donegal Piper, uh, which was the uh, song kind of deriding, uh, <laughs> deriding our piping friend here, uh, um, Mr. McSweeney. Uh, that tune is Fagamid Sudmorat Essay. Not sure how to pronounce that, other than I'm pretty sure I just did it wrong. Uh, but that I played... Uh, canon goodman setting from kind of mid-19th century uh in goodman's book he just has that called jig um but yeah it's closely matched to the other ones and then i played the broomstick a reel from the o'keefe fiddle manuscript which is just a fun fun little tune so that's what we did uh, so I wanted to play a couple more tunes that McSweeney almost certainly played. Uh, this whole mythos that the famed book that McSweeney had was the O'Farrell Tudor, uh, which was, yeah, kind of a rare, kind of a rare book. Uh, it's interesting that it's already a rare book by, um, by O'Neill's day. And at this point, there's no real version of it online apart from ABC notation. Um, all the archive collections are of the pocket companions and, uh, even those are kind of hard to come by. I think volume four is next to impossible to find online. Or no, maybe maybe four is on Ross's music page. I think three and four are on Ross's music page, but like they're not in the National Library of Scotland. So, um, and then same thing with the National Tutor. You can get it in ABC notation, but that's not even on Ross's music page. Um, but you can get it on that Cape Irish website or on Napibra Illan. Uh, but yeah, to see an actual facsimile copy of the original is hard to come by. So uh, anyway... Uh, I thought I should play some of those tunes. So we're going to play the first page, essentially, of O'Farrell's National Tutor, which is a thing I've been meaning to do as an episode anyway. So um, O'Farrell's Tutor tunes are kind of tricky. So uh, the idea of playing through like 10, like I generally do, uh, is going to take too much work. So, uh, But anyway, the first page that tunes are on, it's page 17 of his Tutor, uh, and it opens up with the Hermit of Killarney, which is a tune I've been working on for the next album anyway. So here is the Hermit of Killarney, Killarney from O'Farrell's uh, Tutor, which is before he published all the pocket companions, he published a national tutor. Anyway, here it is, Hermit of Killarney. <laughs>
next tune down is Fair Peggy. So here it is from O'Farrell's National Tutor. And the third tune in O'Farrell's National Tutor is one uh, similar to Hermit of Killarney, where you see a lot of places. Uh, This is Kitty Terrell or Kathleen Threel. But yeah, lovely little tune. So here is Kitty Terrell. So the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 is a really interesting event, um, and I think uh, what I hoped my students would take from reading O'Neill, like there's a couple of interesting things going on, right? I love the detail that Turlough McSweeney shows up with bagpipes that don't work, and that kind of speaks to how well-established the Irish community and like the piping community and pipe-making community already was in the United States in the 1890s. Or how much of a, like, willing to do a gig that he wasn't prepared for McSweeney was. But I think more it speaks to, like, how well-known the Taylor Brothers were. And just in general, that there's, like, vibrant and live piping communities in uh, the United States uh, in 1893. So McSweeney shows up, I think, knowing that this is possible. Patsy Toohey played, like, a specially made, I think a specially made set of Taylor pipes for the fair. Um, The details on that are a little fuzzy. Uh, If I, kind of, if slash when I do... Uh, a read and play through of Patsy Tui's 
um, O'Neill entry. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more probably. Um, the other thing I really like is like the detail about Early, right? Like the, like Sergeant Early lives so big in the Francis O'Neill story and like all these tunes of like Early Boiled the Breakfast or whatever, uh, all the... Uh, all the early tunes is, is sort of interesting in the hospitality. The idea that McSweeney shows up as sort of this curmudgeonly guy, but like gets to hang out at a Piper's house and just live there for a summer um, feels like it feels somehow it, it it's the perfect thing where it feels somehow completely unique to the 1890s and obviously a thing that I have heard of multiple people doing, right? Of like, oh yeah, those Pipers just live together. Like Pat's guy just living with Seamus Ennis um, for <laughs> however long, right? Or um, the guy who made my bagpipes uh, kind of lived with another pipe maker. Uh, Dave Bovera lived with Tim Britton for a summer to kind of learn pipe making and piping. And like, it's something about this instrument and the, the way that it works is sort of... Uh, I don't know. It just matches the idea of the idea of uh, McSweeney living with Early for a summer. Uh, it seems perfect. Uh, the other thing I like about it is like these stories that O'Neill is capturing. Um, there's a performative nature about the things that are going on in the Chicago World's Fair, right? Like this is peak industrial industrializing America. You know, the the frontier has closed. This is a thing that happens at the Columbian Exposition as Frederick Jackson Turner reads his frontier thesis that is essentially setting up the next stage of American exceptionalism and racism and imperialism of saying, hey, the frontier's closed. And um, because there's a census that showed there were too many white people living everywhere. So officially that's how they counted where frontier was or not. So 1892, the census comes out showing like, oh, white people are all over and so there is no longer an area that is a frontier and frederick jackson turner is a historian who kind of theorizes that the the thing that made america great is that there has been a frontier for basically a release valve for these densely populated cities and where people could go and like the rougher sort could go west and uh the enterprising could go west and kind of have this new territory and now that the frontier's closed and like manifest destiny has happened well, what are we going to do and it very much like, obviously, the United States had already been involved in imperialism and colonialism by existing and, you know, trying to have a a country that goes from sea to sea, uh, regardless of the native people in the way. Um, but it really, like, Frederick Jackson Turner's mindset and that frontier thesis, you can really see it as the justification that people use for, like, colonization in the Philippines uh, and, whole, well, I guess, Hawaii is a little bit before then is when the worst of that had happened but it's the annexation of hawaii is still a couple years out anyway um so all this is happening like in 1893 like as the chicago world's fair is happening and then you got mcsweeney there like turlo mcsweeney is performing culture just like so many other people a lot of historians like this is maybe the first of a long series of uh, episodes about the chicago world's fair just because it's such a interesting place and uh it's revealing too like ireland's status in world history, like Ireland's status in the world, like as a colony of England at the point still, um, is b bizarre, right? So the, the, to the two Irish villages that were at the Chicago World's Fair, um, there was, uh, Donegal Castle and Blarney Castle, like both kind of competing firms of various wealthy, uh, institutions and people, uh, had kind of built these fair attractions. And like, 
they are both in the midway. So they're not in the fair proper, like in the fairgrounds, they're in the midway, which is supposed to be an attraction of like oddities and zoo type things. But it's also where all the non-white countries had their presentations. So uh, like next to the Irish village, I think is the Japanese one. Um, but there's also like the, the Turks, the Japanese... Um, there's a Chinese bazaar, rather, an Indian tea house. Uh, there's a Dahomey village. So it's sort of like the colonial. It's either people that are not not European or colonial possessions uh, are there for the most part. And so historians have spent a lot of time talking about that. Like the, the White City is the nickname for the Chicago World's Fair at the time even. And, you know, it's easy to make a lot of hay out of like, oh, yeah, white space. And this is kind of so we're heading towards the peak of the scientific racism stuff that's going to define a lot of what's going on. And then you've got so you got Turlock McSweeney kind of in here in the mix of all of that, um, performing Irishness by playing pipes and trying to attract a crowd. And, and then you've got Francis O'Neill realizing that here's an opportunity to talk to a piper that he can write and record tunes from. And you get the sense that Francis O'Neill is desperate to find tunes from anybody, uh, let alone a famous piper like McSweeney. Um, what I have my students do, uh, this is the first year or the first semester I've had people read Francis O'Neill. Generally, I just have them read Red Man's Rebuke, which is a address from uh, Simon Pekagan, who's a Potawatomi chief in the area who kind of laid claim to Chicago as ancestral homeland, essentially, and would often show up kind of claiming to be the, the rightful heir to all of Chicago. He's an interesting cat, wrote probably the first novel, um, the first like novel written by an indigenous person called Queen of the Woods. And he delivered an opening speech at the Chicago World's Fair, which was fairly polite, but he also distributed this birch bark booklet that was sort of radical called The Red Man's Rebuke. While people like McSweeney and other cultures were like displaying their costume, their heritage and their culture, like native people were done that way too. And while for the most part, the folks that were not white or were not like European um, or were colonial power, uh, colonial subjects were in the midway. The Native Americans were like part of the white city. They were part of the, the main attraction. Like as the host city, that makes some sense, or like host country, that makes some sense. But the way that they, that Native people were positioned there is also really revealing. Like obviously Native people were not like, hey, we want to go put an exhibit up. This is like designed. Um, and so there's two different types of exhibits going on for native people all three i guess there's um a couple like villages that are reconstructed or, or recreated with native people there kind of dressed in traditional clothing and doing dances and crafts and things of that sort there's a pacific northwest kind of cedar longhouse structure or, or village with you know big cedar canoes and totem poles and then there was i think a penobscot village is how it's often attributed uh, but it's birch bark like teepees or Bajishka Ogun is what we call them in Ojibwe, um, but conical shaped birch bark lodges. And um, so there's these like villages of people wearing traditional clothing. And then also part of the fair right next to it was a model residential boarding school. So uh, if you're not familiar with this story of um, essentially the United States, like the federal Indian policy switched to um, trying to like force the uh, adoption or force the conversion into like mainstream white society and people figured out to like triage the adults and just steal the kids so kids were forced to go to residential boarding schools the most famous one is carlisle boarding school where the motto uh, by richard henry pratt right is kill the indian to save the man pratt had been a military officer and ran a pow camp for uh i think kiwa and uh some other uh planes groups and he removed these people like took them to a POW, um, a fort, uh, in, in Florida, uh, where 
St. Augustine was, the, the American fort there. And he realized, like, having the Native people away from their home that far, it was easier to, like, break connections to the place that they were from and to, you know, civilize them, kind of force them to adopt white customs. Interestingly enough, even at, uh, I think it's Fort Marion, but at, at St. Augustine there, where... Uh, Henry Pratt was, he had these people that are like Kiowa and Plains culture folks that, you know, tradition of horseback riding and buffalo hunting, he had them kind of stage pageants for white tourists that would come down to the prisoner, uh, to the prison to see the Indians. He would have them go and hunt sharks and stuff. So like you could watch a group of like Plains warriors essentially kill sharks, which is sort of bizarre and very much in keeping with the sort of activity that was going on at the Chicago World's Fair of like kind of a weird pageantry. Bizarrely, even though there's a model boarding school, Richard Henry Pratt refused to like participate in the World's Fair because what fair organizers wanted was his band because the, the Carlisle Industrial School had a very like typical marching band that was pretty good. Uh, they wanted the marching band to perform at like the opening for the Chicago World's Fair. But what, they, what the fair organizers wanted is they wanted all of these kids that had been removed from their reservations, removed from their community, and kind of forced to live in a POW kind of military boot camp type scenario. They wanted those kids to be wearing their traditional clothing, which Henry Pratt had burned when they showed up. So like they'd have to make costumes. Um, but Pratt refused anyway, because he didn't want, like the whole point was to show that native people could be turned into uh, white acting citizens, right? So he didn't want to do that. Even though earlier and later he winds up doing a lot of pageants, he doesn't want to participate in this uh, sort of facade of having a bunch of native kids wearing traditional clothing while playing, you know, more European styled instruments like, you know, marching band would. Um, so I don't know, it's just really interesting. And so Simon Pickhagen delivers the speech Red Man's Rebuke that I think is a, a good rebuke to it. Um, you know, Simon is an eloquent speaker and uh, clearly like kind of part of that progressive era. And he's also, uh, wildly, like very clearly aware of what the fair goers think of native people and expected native people. So I find it's a really interesting document to read. And I think it's the whole treatment of indigenous people and colonized people at the fair is very interesting to me. And I don't really know. It's like still, I'm still figuring out what to think about it and like how to articulate my thoughts. But there's definitely an aspect of this that, that strikes me as um, interesting or tragic that we've got McSweeney telling fairy stories and proclaiming himself a fairy uh, at the same fair where we're kind of celebrating um, like the residential boarding school, like the industrialization of genocide that the United States was doing at the same time of kind of erasing culture for native people. But I know like Ireland has its own history, right. Of having culture being severely challenged and threatened by colonial rule. So it's interesting that like America really is a land of like, is America a land of opportunity for Irish immigrants the same time it is a becoming a, a genocidal space for native people. And like, Obviously, yes. Like that's how that's how the system works. But it's interesting to see those two things side by side. So I think we've got enough time here. I'll leave you. I'm just going to read uh, Red Man's Rebuke to you, like I I have my students look at because I think it's pretty interesting. But I think we're we're not done talking about the Chicago World's Fair. I uh, there I found a photo, kind of looking through images of a Highland Piper there, but it was a Sikh Piper again at the Midway part of the like colonial possessions. But there's clearly a Sikh man. Um, or at least a person wearing a, a turban. So I assume they're Sikh, but they were, it's anyway, who, who knows? I don't want to make assumptions, but I would, I would guess that that's what's going on. But, um, but yeah, I haven't been able to track that down yet. So like, 
there's Highland Pipers. Uh, we know that at the later Chicago World's Fair, there's a lot of Highland Pipers, but I haven't been able to really track down any information about this uh, Indian Piper uh, quite yet. But anyway, uh, here is uh, just me kind of to go out reading Simon Pickhagen's Red Man's Rebuke, which is, uh, yeah, an interesting document. Like I said, uh, Simon Pickhagen's Potawatomi, and like really looking at the language he's using, it is clear that he knows what his audience expect native people to sound like, and he's using it. Like, refers to white people as pale faces. That is not a Potawatomi word, right? So Potawatomi folks would be calling white people Chimokimon or Wemtaguji or Joganashi, like different phrases that would be more specific than pale faces, except that's already the language that's kind of expected in the pageantry of native people. He also clearly portrays native people as being childlike and looking to adults to take better care of them than they did. Um, he's also converted like he's a christian at this point and he's very like he's got an interesting narrative of there are good ones and bad ones um and uh well anyway i don't want to tell you too much what to think about it i i find it to be a really fascinating document so anyway here is simon pickagan's red man's rebuke and uh yeah we'll catch y'all on the next episode at some point in the not too distant future uh, if you want to support the podcast you can go to patreon.com slash way and we got some bonus episodes up over there and often i'll release episodes that are um, just audio or just kind of audiobook reading of things i'm working on but haven't figured out how to crystallize into a episode yet um, so it's worth checking out so anyway thanks everyone and anybody that's lbps members uh check your email and hopefully you can come and hang out with me and uh learn some tunes coming up later in February here. So cheers. Following is a reading of the Red Man's Rebuke by Simon Pickhagen, presented at the Columbian World's Fair Exposition in 1893 Chicago, Illinois. It begins with a foreword. By the author. My object in publishing the Red Man's Rebuke and the Bark of White Birch Tree is out of loyalty to my own people and gratitude to the Great Spirit, who in his wisdom provided for our use for untold generations this most remarkable tree, with manifold bark used by us instead of paper, being of greater value to us as it could not be injured by sun or water. Out of the bark of this wonderful tree were made hats, caps, and dishes for domestic use, while our maidens tied with it the knot that sealed their marriage vow, Wigwams were made of it, as well as large canoes that outrode the violent storms on lake and sea. It was also used for light and fuel at our war councils and spirit dances. Originally, the shores of our northern lakes and streams were fringed with it, and ever green, and with white charmingly contrasted with the green mirrored from the water was indeed beautiful. But like the red man, this tree is vanishing from our forests. Quote, Alas for us, our day is o'er. Our fires are out from shore to shore. No more for us. The wild deer bounds. The plow is on our hunting grounds. The pale man's axe rings through our woods. The pale man's sail skims o'er our floods. Our pleasant springs are dry. Our children look by power oppressed. Beyond the mountains of the west, our children go to die. The Red Man's Rebuke by Simon Pekagan, Potawatomi Chief. Quote, Shall not one line lament our forest race? For you struck out from wild creation's face. Freedom, the self-same freedom you adore, bade us defend our violated shore. On behalf of my people, the American Indians, I hereby declare to you the pale-faced race that has usurped our lands and homes that we have no spirit to celebrate with you the great Columbian Fair now being held in the Chicago city the wonder of the world. 
No, sooner would we hold joy, high joy over the graves of our departed fathers than to celebrate our own funeral, the discovery of America. And while you who are strangers, and you who live here, bring the offerings of the handiwork of your own lands, and your hearts in admiration rejoice over the beauty and grandeur of this young republic, and you say, Behold the wonders wrought by our children in this foreign land. Do not forget that this success has been at the sacrifice of our homes and a once happy race. Where these great Columbian show buildings stretch skyward, and where stands this queen city of the West, once stood the red man's wigwam. Here met their old men, young men, and maidens. Here blazed their council fires, but now the eagle's eye can find no trace of them. Here was the center of their widespread hunting grounds, stretching far eastward into the great salt, salt gulf southward, and the lofty rocky mountain chain westward, and all about and beyond the great lakes northward roamed the vast herds of buffalo that no man could number, while moose, deer, and elk were found from ocean to ocean. Pigeons, ducks, and geese, and near bowshot moved in great clouds through the air, while fish swarmed our streams, lakes, and seas close to shore. All were provided by the Great Spirit for our use. We destroyed none except for food and dress, and had plenty, and were contented and happy. But alas, the pale-faces came by chance to our shores, many times very needy and hungry. We nursed and fed them, fed the ravens that were soon to pluck out our eyes, and the eyes of our children. For no sooner had the news reached the old world that a new continent had been found, peopled with another race of men, than, locust-like, they swarmed on all our coasts, and, like the carrion crows in spring, that in circles wheel and clamor long and loud will not cease until they find and feast upon the dead. So these strangers from the east long circuits made, and turkey-like they gobbled in our ears, Give us gold, give us gold. Where find you gold? Where find you gold? We gave for promises and gewgaws all the gold we had and showed them where to dig for more to repay us they robbed our homes of fathers mothers sons and daughters some were forced across the sea for slaves in spain while multitudes were dragged into the mines to dig for gold and held in slavery there until all who escaped not died under the lash of the cruel taskmaster it finally passed into their history that, quote, the red man of the West, unlike the black man of the East, will die before he'll be a slave, unquote. Our hearts were crossed by such base ingratitude, and as the United States has now decreed, no Chinaman shall land upon our shores, unquote, so we then felt that no such barbarians as they should land on ours. In those days that tried our father's souls, tradition says a crippled gray-haired sire told his tribe that in the visions of the night he was lifted high above the earth and in great wonder beheld vast a vast spiderweb spread out over the land of the atlantic ocean towards the setting sun its network was made of rods of iron along its lines in all directions rest monstrous spiders greater in strength and larger than any beast of earth clad in brass iron dragging after the long rows of wigwams with families therein outstripping in their course the flight of birds that fled before them hissing from the nostrils came forth fire and smoke uh, striking terror to both fowl and beast the red men hid themselves in fear or fled away, while the white men trained these monsters for the warpath as warriors for battle. 
The old man who saw the vision claimed it meant that the Indian race would surely pass away before the pale-faced strangers. He died a martyr to his belief. Centuries have passed since that time, and we now behold in the vision as in a mirror the present network of railroads and the monstrous engines with fire, smoke, and hissing steam with cars attached as they go sweeping through the land. The cyclone of civilization rolled westward. The forests of untold centuries were swept away. Streams dried up. Lakes fell back from their ancient bounds. And all our fathers once loved to gaze upon was destroyed, defaced, or marred, except the sun, moon, and starry skies above, which the great spirit in his wisdom hung beyond their reach. Still, on the storm cloud rolled while further in lighting lightning and thunder, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air withered like grass before the flame, were shot for love of power to kill alone, and left to spoil upon the plains, their bleaching bones now scattered far and near, in shame declare the wanton cruelty of pale-faced men. The storm unsatisfied on land swept our lakes and streams, while before its clouds of hooks, nets, glistening spears, the fish vanished from our waters like the morning dew before the rising sun. Thus our inheritance was cut off, and we were driven and scattered as sheep before the wolves. Nor was this all. They brought among us fatal diseases our fathers knew not of. Our medicine men tried in vain to check the deadly plague, but they themselves died. And our people fell, as fall the leaves before the autumn's blast. To be just, we must acknowledge there were some good men with these strangers, who gave their lives for ours, and in great kindness taught us to revealed will taught us the revealed will of the Great Spirit through his son Jesus, the mediator between all our heart, mind, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves and our children were taught to lisp, quote, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Bad men of the same race, whom we thought all the same belief, shocked our faith in the revealed will of the Father as they came among us with bitter oaths upon their lips, something we had never heard before, and cups of fire water in their hands, something we had never seen before. They pressed the sparkling glasses to our lips and said, Drink, and you will be happy. We drank thereof. We and our children, but alas, like the serpent that charms to kill the drink habit coiled around the heartstrings of its victims, shocking unto death, friendship, love, honor, manhood, all that makes men good and noble, crushing out all ambition, and leaving naught but a culprit vagabond in the place of a man. Now, as we have been taught to believe that our first parents ate of the forbidden fruit and fell, so we as fully believe that this firewater is the hard cider of the white man's devil, made from the fruit of that tree, brought death into the world and all our woes. The arrow, the scalping knife, and the tomahawk used in the warpath were merciful compared with it. They were used in our defense, but the accursed drink came like a serpent in the form of a dove. Many of our people partook of it without mistrust, as children pluck the flowers from a clutch of a scorpion in their grasp. Only when they feel the sting, they let the flowers fall. But nature's children had no such power, for when the viper's fangs f they felt, they only hugged the reptile the more closely to their breasts, while friends before them stood pleading with prayers and tears that they would let the deadly serpent drop, but all in vain. Although they promised so to do, yet with laughing grin and steps uncertain like the fool, 
they still more frequently guzzled down his hellish drug. Finally, conscience ceased to give alarm, and led by the deep despair to life's last brink, and goaded by demons on every side, they cursed themselves, they cursed their friends, they cursed their beggar babes and wives, they cursed their god and died. You say of us that we are treacherous, vindictive, and cruel, and answer to the charge we declare to all the world with our hands uplifted before high heaven that before the white man came among us we were kind, outspoken, and forgiving. Our real character has been misunderstood because we have resented the breaking of treaties made with the United States as we honestly understood them. The few of our children who are permitted to attend your schools in great pride tell us that they read in your own histories how William Penn, a Quaker and a good man, made treaties with 19 tribes of Indians, and that neither he nor they ever broke them. And further, that during 70 years, while Pennsylvania was controlled by the Quakers, not a drop of blood was shed, nor a war hoop sounded by our people. Your own historians and our traditions show that for nearly 200 years, different eastern powers were striving for the mastery in the new world that our people were persuaded by the different factions to take the warpath being generally led by white men who had been discharged from prisons for for, for crimes committed in the old world read the following left on record by peter martyr who visited our forefathers in the day of columbus quote it is certain that the land among these people is as common as the sun and water, and that mine and thine, the seat of all misery, have no place with them. They are content with so little, that so large a country they have rather a superfluity than a scarceness, so that they seem to live in the golden world without toil, living in open gardens, not entrenched with dikes, divided with hedges, or defended with walls. They deal truly one with another." without laws, without books, without judges. They take him for an evil and mischievous man who taketh pleasure in doing hurt to another, and albeit they delight not in superfluities, yet they make provision for the increase of such roots whereof they make bread, content with such simple diet whereof health is preserved and disease avoided. End quote. Your own history show that Columbus, on his first visit to our shores, in a message to the king and queen of Spain, paid our forefathers this beautiful tribute. Quote, they are loving, uncovetous people, so docile in all things that I swear to your majesty there is not in the world a better race or a more delightful country. They love their neighbors as themselves, and their talk is ever sweet and gentle, accompanied with smiles. And, now, and though they be naked, yet their manners are, are decorous and praiseworthy. But a, few, end quote. but a few years passed away, and your histories left us to be pursued with shame. The following facts. Quote, On the islands of the Atlantic coast, and in the populous empires of Mexico and Peru, the Spaniards, though pretense of friendship and re religion, gained audience with chiefs and kings, their families and attendants. They were received with great kindness and courtesy, but in return, they most treacherously seized and bound in chains the unsuspecting natives, and as a ransom for their release, demanded large sums of gold, which were soon given by their subjects. But instead of granting them freedom as promised, they were put to death in a most shocking manner. Their subjects were then hunted down like wild beasts, with bloodhounds robbed and enslaved, while under pretext to convert them to Christianity, the rack, the scourge, the faggot were used." Some were burned alive in their thickets and fastness for refusing to work the minds of slaves. End quote. 
Tradition said these acts of base ingratitude were communicated from tribe to tribe throughout the continent, and that a universal wail of one voice went up from all the tribes of the unbroken wilderness. Quote, we must beat back these strangers from our shores before they seize our lands and homes or slavery and death are ours. Unquote. Reader, pause here. Close your eyes. Shut out from your heart all prejudice against our race, and honestly consider the above records, penned by the pale-faced historians centuries ago, and tell us, in the name of eternal truth, and by all that is sacred and dear to mankind, was there ever a people, without the slightest reason of offense, more treacherously imprisoned and scourged than we have been, and tell us... Have crime, despotism, violence, and slavery ever been dealt out in a more wicked manner to crush out life and liberty? Or was ever a people more mortally offended than our forefathers were? Almighty, Spirit of Humanity, let thy arms of compassion embrace and shield us from the charge of treachery, vindictiveness, and cruelty, and save us from further oppression. And may the great chief of the United States appoint no more broken down or disappointed politicians as agents to deal with us, but may he select good men that are tried and true, men who fear not to do the right. This is our prayer. What would remain for us if we were not allowed to pray? All else we acknowledge to be in the hands of this great republic. It is clear that for years after the discovery of this country, we stood before the coming strangers as a block of marble before the sculptor, ready to be shaped into a statue of grace and beauty, but in their greed for gold, the block was hacked to pieces and destroyed. Childlike, we trusted in them with all our hearts, and as the young nestling, while yet blind, swallows each morsel given by the parent bird, so we drank in all they said. They showed us the compass that guided them across the trackless deep, and as its needle swung to and fro, only resting to the north, we looked upon it as a thing of life from the eternal world. We could not understand the lightning and thunder of their guns, believing they were weapons of the gods, nor could we fathom their wisdom in knowing and telling us the exact time in which the sun or moon should be darkened. Hence, we looked upon them as divine. We revered them. Yes, we trusted in them as infants trust in the arms of their mothers. But again and again was our confidence betrayed, until we were compelled to know that greed for gold was all the balance wheel they had. The remnant of the beasts are now wild and keep beyond the arrow's reach. The fowls fly high in the air. The fish hide themselves in deep waters. We have been driven from the homes of our childhood and from the burial places of our kindred and friends and scattered far westward into the desert places, where multitudes have died from homesickness, cold, and hunger, and are suffering and dying still for want of food and blankets. As the hunted deer, close chased all day long, when night comes on, weary and tired, lie down to rest, mourning for companions of the morning herd, all scattered, dead, and gone, so we... Through weary years have tried to find some place to safely rest, but all in vain. Our throbbing hearts unceasing say, The hounds, quote, the hounds are howling on our tracks, quote. Our sad history has been told by weeping parents to their children from generation to generation, and as the fear of the fox and the duckling is hatched, so the wrongs we have suffered are transmitted to our children, and they look upon the white man with distrust as soon as they are born. 
Hence, our worst acts of cruelty should be viewed by all the world with Christian charity as being but the echo of bad treatment dealt out to us. Therefore, we pray our critics everywhere to be not like the thoughtless boy who condemns the toiling bees wherever found as vindictive and cruel because, in robbing their homes, he once received the poisoned darts that nature gave them for their defense. Our strongest defense against the onward marching hordes we fully realize is as useless as the struggles of a lamb born high in air, pierced to its heart, and the talons of an eagle. We never shall be happy here any more. We gaze into the faces of our little ones, the smiles of infancy to please, and into the faces of our young men and maidens for joys of youth to cheer advancing age. But alas, instead of smiles of joy, we find but looks of sadness there. Then we fully realize in the anguish of our souls that their young and tender hearts in keenest sympathy with ours have drank in the sorrows we have felt, and their sad faces reflected back to us again. No rainbow of promise spans the dark cloud of our afflictions. No cheering hopes are painted on our midnight sky. We only stand with folded arms and watch and wait to see the future deal with us no better than the past. No cheer of sympathy is given us, but in answer to our complaints, we are told the triumph march of the eastern race westward is by the unalterable decree of nature, termed by them the survival of the fittest. And so we stand as upon the seashore, chained hand and foot, while the incoming tide of the great ocean of civilization rises slowly but surely to overwhelm us. But a few more generations and the last chill of the forest will have passed into the world beyond, into that kingdom where... Chiban Yibuz, the great spirit, dwelleth, who loveth justice and mercy, and hateth evil, who has declared the fittest in his kingdom shall be those alone that hear and aid his children when they cry, and that love him and keep his commandments. In that kingdom, many of our people in faith believe he will summon the pale-faced spirits to take position on his left and the red spirits upon his right, and that he will say, Sons and daughters of the forest, your prayers for deliverance from the iron heel of oppression through centuries past are recorded in this book now open before me, made from the bark of the white birch, a tree under which the generations past you have mourned and wept. On its pages silently has been recorded your sad history. It has touched my heart with pity, and I will have compassion. Then, turning to his left, he will say, Sons and daughters of the East, all hear and give heed unto my words. While on earth I did great and marvelous things for you, I gave my only Son, who declared unto you my will, and as you had freely received, to so freely give, and declare the gospel unto all people. A few of you have kept the faith, and through opposition and great tribulation have labored hard and honestly for the redemption of mankind regardless of race or color. To all such I now give divine power to fly on lightning wings and throughout my universe. Now therefore listen, and when the great drum beats, let all try their powers to fly. Only those can rise who acted well their part on earth to redeem and save the fallen. The drum will be sounded, and the innumerable multitude will appear like some vast sea of wounded birds struggling to rise. We shall behold it, and shall hear their fluttering as the rumbling of an earthquake, and to our surprise shall see but a scattering few in triumph rise, and hear their songs re-echo through the vault of heaven as they sing glory to the highest who hath redeemed and saved us. 
Then the Great Spirit will speak with a voice of thunder, and the remaining shame-faced multitude, Hear ye, it is through great mercy that you have been permitted to enter these happy hunting grounds. Therefore, I charge you in presence of these red men that you are guilty of being, of having tyrannized over them in many and strange ways. I find you guilty of having made wanton wholesale butchery of their game and fish. I find you guilty of using tobacco, a poisonous weed made only to kill parasites on plants and lice on man and beast. You found it with the red men, who used it only in smoking the pipe of peace to confirm their contracts in place of a seal, but you multiplied its use not only in smoking, but in chewing, snuffing, thus forming unhealthy, filthy habits, and by cigarettes the abomination of abominations, learned little children to hunger and thirst after the father and mother of palsy and cancers. I find you guilty of tagging after the pay agents sent out by the great chief of the United States among the Indians to pay off their birthright claims to home and liberty and native lands, and then sneaking out about their agencies by deceit and trickery, cheating and robbing them of their money and goods, and thus leaving them poor and naked. I also find you guilty of following the trail of Christian missionaries into the wilderness among the natives, and when they had set up my altars, and my great work of redemption had just begun, and some in faith believed, you then and there most wickedly set up the idol of Manchiman Edu, the devil. And there stuck out your sign, Sample Rooms. You then dealt out to the sons of the forest a most damnable drug, fitly termed on earth by Christian women a beverage of hell, which destroyed both body and soul, taking therefore all their money and blankets, and scrupling not to take in pawn the Bibles given them by my servants. Therefore, know ye, this much-abused race shall enjoy the liberties of these happy hunting grounds while I teach them my will, which you were in duty bound to do while on earth, but instead you blocked up the highway that led to heaven, that the car of salvation might not pass over. Had you done your duty, they as well as you would now be rejoicing in glory with my saints with whom you, fluttering, tried this dry and vain to rise. But now I say unto you, stand back. You shall not tread upon the heels of my people, nor tyrannize over them any more. Neither shall you, with gatling gun or otherwise, disturb or break up their prayer meetings and camp any more. Neither shall you practice with weapons of lightning and thunder any more. Neither shall you use tobacco in any shape, way, or manner. Neither shall you touch, taste, handle, make, buy, or sell anything that can intoxicate any more. And know ye, ye cannot buy out the law or skulk by justice here. And if any attempt is made on your part to break these commandments, I shall forthwith grant these red men of America great power and delegate them to cast you out of paradise and hurl you headlong through its outer gates into the endless abyss beneath, far beyond, where darkness meets with light, there to dwell, and thus shut you out from my presence and the presence of angels and the light of heaven forever and ever.